way, way, way back from La Sierra days. And uh, we worked together when I was in the Imperial Valley. And then uh, I think when I came up here, he then came up to Corona. And so I'm just thankful that we can do ministry together for even just one afternoon or one morning. And I'm thankful for the Corona youth. You guys sound amazing. Right, family? Amen. Amen. So let's, um, we have a word of prayer with me as we get started. Gracious God, we want to thank you that you allow us to be here this morning. We want to thank you that we woke up, that we were able to drive ourselves, and that we are now here. So God, now as we, as we open up your word, and as we read what's been true for thousands of years, my prayer is that the words I speak would be your words, and that the Holy Spirit would use them in a way to transform everyone who is here this morning. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series, and I called it Blueprint, a guide to a deeper faith. And it begins with this premise. If you build your house on a faulty foundation, your house will eventually fall. If you build your house on bad foundation, your house will ultimately fall. And this is especially true of your spiritual life. If your relationship with Jesus isn't on a firm foundation, if you don't know what you truly believe in or who you believe in when you pray, I believe that when the storms of life come, your house may fall. And so this morning, as your pastor, as your brother, as your friend, We're beginning this series through the book, or rather the letter of Romans, because I believe that it is one of the essential books that teaches you and teaches me how to believe what we believe. A few weeks ago, one of our elders, Bob, he did a sermon, a wonderful sermon about who this man Paul is, and so I won't get into it this morning. It's up on the website if you want to listen to it. But God uses a man named Paul not only to write the letter to the Romans, but 12 other books of the Bible. And it is within those books that you and I find the nuts and bolts of what it looks like to be a Christian. And so this morning we are beginning with Romans chapter 1. And it says this, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the, wait, yeah, set apart for the gospel of God. Right off the bat, right? Right off the bat, Paul says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. So he, he defines who his master is, which is Jesus Christ. He says, I've been called to be an apostle. So he says, this is my profession. This is my position. This is my calling. And his purpose, he says, is that he is set apart for the gospel of God. From the very beginning of this letter, Paul says, I know who my master is. I know what he has called me to do. And I know what my purpose is, in essence. What we will find next week is that his, as the essence of his calling was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, I was um, overly ambitious. This morning, when I wrote this sermon, it was page upon page upon page upon page of notes, to which I realized I, I, 30 minutes isn't nearly enough for what I need to say. And so as God was working with me over the last couple of days, especially last night, God kind of put it in my head, and he said, make it shorter. There's no time limit on how long sermon series go. We're going to be here every Sabbath, right? So you won't want to miss this because it's going to shape you. 
So we're going to begin with a very simple phrase from chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. We live in a culture where we identify ourselves or allow ourselves to be identified by so many different things. Some of you identify yourselves by the person that you marry. Others of you allow yourself to be identified by the career or the profession that you have. Some of you are identified by the places where you live, the cars you drive. Others still are, allow yourself to be identified by the pictures of food you post to Instagram. So yeah, some of you know you're like, what? Right? Because we put these pictures on our social media feeds to show people, hey, this is who I am, and we hope that through them we become identified. Case in point, there's something that's going on right now uh, in the world of, of well, in the world, but also in the world especially of social media, and most of you have probably seen this by now, but it's called the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. So, Brett, will you get the bucket? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But what you find if you go on social media, and some of you who don't have an account, just go bear with us because some of the younger folks, like Pastor Gilbert, has a Facebook and Instagram, and he does this kind of stuff. And what we find, that's not a bad thing, I'm saying he does social media. But one of the things that we've been noticing is that people, basically the essence of it, if you don't know what this is, is we've all heard of ALS, right? It's a disease, it attacks your nervous system. And so these two people decided that they would start what's called an ice bucket challenge where you would challenge someone to either dump, I think initially it was like three buckets of ice water on yourself, or pay $100 towards the ALS research. Noble cause. So what it started off as is if you, if you can't pay it, then you take the ice bucket challenge. But if you can, then you don't do the challenge and you just pay towards this cause to help people um, learn more and be able to hopefully someday treat this disease. What ended up happening over the last month, and especially over the last like week and a half, is that people are challenging one another. And all you see on these, fa- on these um, Insta- social media feeds is just these ice bucket challenges because people want to be identified by being a part of a cause. People are wanting to say, look, I am a part of this trend. I am a part of what's going on. And so everyone, it seems, has been doing these ice bucket challenges because we want to be identified. We want to people to know that we are a part of the cool trend. We are a part of what's going on. We know what's happening in the world. Paul says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. In a culture where you define yourself by so many things, Paul reminds you that your primary marker of identity is in Jesus Christ. You can allow yourself to be identified by so many things, But the one true identity marker, the one that will help you not only get through every single day of your life, but the one in whom holds all of the universe and creation, it is in Jesus Christ. If you put and allow yourself to be identified by Jesus, then you will be able to live life at its fullest and the most abundant life. Jesus at the center of your life. Your worth and your value is in Jesus Christ. And when it is, your value no longer depends on what grades you get in your classes. When your value and your faith is in Christ, it doesn't matter who your boyfriend or your girlfriend is. When your value is in Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how many likes you get on your Instagram posts. 
When your value is in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone, then nothing else really matters. So when Paul says that I am a slave of Jesus Christ, here's what he is saying. He says, I I sign over, I turn over my rights, my passions, my desires, my purpose, my life, the plans that I have set, my five-year plan, my 10-year plan, my 20-year plan, the thing that, you know, my schedule for next week. I have turned everything over to Christ. And when you do that, as Paul did with his life, when you become a slave of Christ and your identity is found in Christ, then God is now in control of your life. Everything that made Paul who he was, his entire identity, was wrapped up in the person of Christ. There's another line that I want to read to you. It says, when you allow your identity and your value and your worth to be defined by Jesus, you become who you were always created to be. Don't be thrown off by the thing that says tweetable line. When we were in seminary and in college, we're taught that your sermon, if you can narrow it down to one sentence, it's called like the silver bullet or the magic bullet. But in a world of 160 characters, it's a tweetable line now. But when you allow your identity and your value and your worth to be tied up and defined by Jesus, then you will finally become who God always intended you to be. And this is a scary thought for some of you. Some of you are control freaks. Some of you know... Some of you have even planned your funeral and you're like 20, right? Some of you are so in control or want to be so in control of your life that you have every minute and every detail of every day planned out. And yet for Paul, who also had everything planned out, on one trip towards Damascus, God knocks him off of his horse and he changes his life. Paul, after all, as Pastor Brett said, was a man of power. He was a man of authority. He had people that were following him. I mean, you wanted to be this guy named Paul because he was one of the power players. People respected him. People were afraid of him. Everybody wanted to be Paul. And Paul, instead of keeping that position, he resigns it and he says, I now want my identity to be that I am a slave, a voluntary slave of Jesus Christ. Now, the word slave in our culture has really negative connotation. And rightfully so, right? Our nation's history has a dark period of slavery. Slavery is bad. And yet Paul uses the word slave, a voluntary slave, to define his relationship to Christ. To Christ, He says, everything I do away with, the only thing that matters is Christ. I remember when we're kids, and some of you may, may still do this, some of the younger people here, But I remember when we were kids, my parents would go away to work, and um, they would leave us kids home alone because we couldn't afford a babysitter. And in Mexican families, you don't need a babysitter because there's plenty of us to take care of each other. So we would be home alone, and I was the youngest. So we would have chores that we would be given, and we always had to do chores before mom and dad came home, or else we were in big trouble. So one of the things we would do is we would always barter and bargain with one another. And so sometimes we would try to make sure that the other person did our chores, or, or, and sometimes throughout the day. Now, one of the rules was, just to show you my parents were not bad parents leaving us home alone, um, that we couldn't, we couldn't go out to the front of the house. So we go in the backyard, but in the front yard we can't, right? Because then the authorities show up, you know, because we're home alone. 
But we would always do that because we knew when our parents came home, and so when I would go over to my neighbor's house, which is one of my best friends to this day, when I would go over there and I would come back, my sister would be like, I'm going to tell mom. I was like, no, don't tell mom, don't tell mom. And she was like, fine then, you have to be my slave for a week. <laughs> Which meant indentured servitude, and you had to do their, you know, whatever their chores were, we would do. So slave has this negative connotation, and yet when Paul uses the word slave, he says, no, to be a slave of this person, Jesus Christ, who is God, to be his slave is to be in the hands of the most powerful, most magnificent, most um, all-knowing, the, the, the words, every word that means awesome in their dialect, to be a slave of that person means that you will be living life at its fullest. It's not bad. It's not negative. You don't have to worry about all these other things because he will take care of you. You don't have to worry about what you're doing 10 years from now because God will take care of you because if you surrender yourself to this God, he will not disappoint you. Paul also, being the smart man that he was, because for Paul, and we're going to talk about this more next week, but for Paul, his entire understanding of how the world worked was based on an Old Testament understanding of how the world works. He was a Jew. And especially the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, as he understood it, that shaped how he saw the world. And in those first five books of the Bible, we see people, and, and a few chapters and a few books beyond that, we see people identify themselves as slaves of Yahweh, slaves of the Lord. And so Paul takes that and he says, now I will be a slave of Jesus Christ. That's important because he took something that was 4,000, maybe more years old, something he, he, that was written thousands and thousands of years ago in a different dialect, in a different language, and Paul takes that and he says, I will be a servant of Yahweh. I will be a slave of Jesus Christ. And in 2014, in the small city of Orange, we are given the opportunity to say, I want to take what Paul says and I want to be identified by that. I want to be David, comma, slave of Christ Jesus. I want to be a slave, and I want to give my life to the Messiah. Now I know, if you're new, if maybe you haven't been a part of church life for a long time, you're like, is this guy really calling us to be slaves? Is this pastor, man, these pastors are getting younger and dumber, because he is telling us that slavery is good. No, slavery is bad, except for when we use it in a spiritual term to say that we want to give our entire life to Christ. And I want to show you a little bit more about what that looks like. Remember I said, when you give your life to Christ, the adventure of your life begins then. So I want to look at the words of Jesus, where he says, No one, no one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other but you cannot serve God and wealth. Now, when we look at the word wealth, it's not just talking about the money that's in your bank account or your jobs, but it's, a, it's more of a symbol, it's a metaphor for you either serve God or everything else. And you have to make the choice. And God says, look, you may be going to church, you may be paying your tithe, you may even be giving an extra 3% to church budget, which we appreciate, thank you. You may be dressed the way you're supposed to and wear a suit every single Sabbath and you wear nice clothes. and you, you, know, you may do all of these things that outwardly, you may even have memorized the entire Bible. 
I know that there are some of you in here who can give, you know, awesome Bible studies, and you know which verse is connected to which verse. And so God is saying, look, you can do all these things that look like you've submitted your life to Christ, or rather for him to God. But he says you can't serve two masters. It's not about what it looks like on the outside, but it's about how you live your life on the inside. It's not about the show that you put on for others, because let's just be honest. Every single one of us in this room puts on a show for the other people that are here. True? When was the last time you talked to the person sitting across the aisle the way you talked to your husband or your wife? And I'm not talking about the romantic talk. How many of you have ever snapped at someone? How many of you have ever said words that you wish you could take back? You don't do that at church. Every single one of us in this place is putting on a front. I would even go as far as to say every one of us in here is a hypocrite, including myself. God understands that. He's not asking you to be perfect. He's just saying, own up to who you are and then put your life in my hands. It's not about what people see on the outside. It's about who you truly are deep down inside. And so Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to give your life to me fully 100% and allow me to lead you, or you're going to go and do whatever you want. And you can, and you have the freedom. But Jesus understands that if you choose that way, you will miss out on the most abundant and beautiful life. Because we always have this tendency of, well, if I give my life to Jesus, that's going to be boring. If I give my life to Jesus, I may not be able to do the things I really want to do. If I give my life to Jesus as a Seventh-day Adventist, then I can't do anything on Saturdays but sleep. <laughs> if you're not Adventist, internal joke, I'll explain later. But there is this sense in our culture all around us that if we give our lives to Christ, we're going to miss out on something good. When the truth couldn't be further from that truth is that when you give your life to Jesus, that's when the adventure actually begins. So it doesn't mean that everything will be perfect. It doesn't mean that you'll never get sick. It doesn't mean that you'll never cry. It doesn't mean that that boy won't break your heart. It doesn't mean that that girl won't break your heart. It doesn't mean that you won't be in debt. It doesn't mean that you'll drive a Bentley or a Lexus or a Jaguar. It doesn't mean any of that. If you give your life to Christ, it's when the storms come, and they will come, you'll be able to walk on water. Because this is the God who raises the dead. This is the God who heals the sick, gives sight to the blind. This is the God who made crippled people walk and lepers clean. This is the God who rescues an entire people out of slavery. This is the God who calls you friend. And he says, choose whatever you want. But you can only choose one. And I would go on to further say that even if you've been choosing something other than God, I believe that scripture teaches us that God always allows you to change your mind. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. This is an essence of a metaphor 
says you cannot have two masters. You cannot be divided. You cannot live on the fence. And anything in your life, if you're living on the fence, not sure which side you're going to choose, that's horrible. That's anxiety-ridden. That's not life. God says choose one way or the other. Choose one way or the other. I believe that when God confronts us as he confronted Paul, when you are encountered by God, you have nothing but the, you have no ability to refuse God. I think we can put it off for as long as we can. I think we can keep ignoring it. We can keep telling ourselves different things. That, oh, that, that life's not going to be worth it. But when you are encountered by God, my belief is that you can do nothing but choose God. Remember we started this series, or rather this sermon this morning, by saying that a house built on a faulty foundation will eventually in the book of Acts, it tells us that Jesus is the stone that was rejected by others, by humanity, right? He was crucified. But he has become the cornerstone of our faith. Jesus is that cornerstone that anchors you. Jesus is the cornerstone of your life that if you anchor the rest of your life around him, you will be able to flourish and thrive in a way that you have never experienced. And I know that there are some of you in here who have experienced some heartbreaking things in your life. I'm not making light of those things. I'm not saying, oh, God had a plan for that. No, we live in a fallen world where things happen the way they're not always supposed to. But we also know that God is moving history forward so that one day every wrong will be righted and every tear will be dried up and the eternal weight of glory will far outweigh even the darkest hour in your life. And we can begin to have that faith and that hope when we give our life to Christ. I'm going to just, can I, can I do like four more minutes? I feel like, can I say something in all candor and honesty? I feel like the sermon could have ended there. In seminary, they tell us, learn how to land your plane, right? <laughs> Don't keep circling, which is what we do sometimes. <laughs> but, but, I feel that this passage that I, I, I went for a jog this morning, early in the morning, and just kind of getting my thoughts straight, and, and God kind of placed this kind of in my heart last night, and he said, this is what you have to preach this morning. So I'm just going to share one small, small passage more to kind of, kind of bring this. This is what it looks like. I'm a, what I'm about to show you is what it looks like when your foundation is Christ. Okay, When you have truly given your life to Christ and you have anchored yourself on the foundation that is Christ, this is what your life will look like. This is Paul. He's writing the same letter, a different letter. As God's chosen ones, those of people of faith, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. You know what's hard about this? I have been the opposite of all of these things this week at some point or another. Because the work of sanctification, or, or rather the work of God continuing to mold and shape us, is a daily, constant battle. But when God is our foundation, we will learn to be more compassionate. You will learn to be kinder. You will learn to be more humble. You will be more meek, and you will have more patience. Why? 
Not just because, oh, we're going to be one happy family. No, it's because when we go back to the beginning as being a slave of Christ and we owe our entire existence to Christ, when we give all that to Jesus, then we begin to live as citizens of a heavenly place. And we begin to value these things rather than just what we want. He would go on to say, bear one another, so help one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So if you have a complaint, if someone has wronged you, if someone has hurt you, when Jesus is the foundation of your life, you don't have a choice. You have to forgive. And I've said this before, however... You find yourself in an abusive physical situation or whatever come talk to me that's a different situation but i'm talking about the normal stuff the gossip the slander that kind of stuff forgive one another forgive one another not just because i said so but because god forgave you first god already did the hard work of all the junk you've done in your life god has forgiven you for the stuff you did and the stuff you will do and the stuff you will do may be worse than the stuff you've done, and yet God will still forgive you because he is a God of love. Above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. My wish, my dream, my desire is that the Orange Seventh-day Adventist Church would continue to be a church that above all clothes itself with love, so that when people see us, they will say, I want to be a part of that, not, oh, I don't want to be a part of that place. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we hate it when you challenge us as hard as you have this morning. Because it requires us to make a decision on whether we will follow you or whether we will keep living as we are. We hate it because it's hard. We hate when we are challenged because it requires that something inside of us has to die. And so if, if there is someone here, Lord, who is just wrestling, I pray that you will relieve that burden. And I pray that you will be able to give them a glimpse of what life can look like when you are their foundation. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Bless the Lord, our souls. So bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like this.
Father, we thank you for the gift of music and of worship. We thank you for the gift of fellowship. We thank you for the gift of your word. And so we pray, Lord, that as we allow you into our hearts, that you would use this time that we've spent together as a way to continue to shape us into the masterpiece you've created us to be. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.